The word of the Lord, as written in the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verses 23 to 28. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just it is, as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. My name's Joey, one of the uh, lead pastors here. Would love to get to know you if we've never met before. Uh, normally, I would shake your hand. Uh, today, I'm not going to. Pastor Nathan was so gracious and shared whatever he has with me, which is why I have some backup supplies here just in case, because I'm kind of flying high on decongestants right now, uh, which is great. This is the last Sunday on this stage, and it may be the first time I fall off it while preaching. So we'll just uh, we'll see what happens. You know, I was thinking back to um, formative experiences. Of course, we all have them and would point to different things that sort of shaped us into the person we are. And as I was preparing for this morning, I was reflecting on a particular event way back in 1997 when I was a freshman in high school. And I thought I had finally found like, my tribe, my people, my fam, the, the guys that were going to stick with me all the way through. It's two other guys, Vince and Chris, and the three of us were inseparable. Vince was uh, more of the ladies' man of the three of us. He was always quick to impress girls, but he had this rebellious streak that uh, made him drive his tractor to prom one year. <laughs> it was a rural area, so that wasn't as odd as you would think it is. Um, Chris had just moved to town only a year or two before, so he was desperately just wanting to be accepted, wanting to be accepted in some group somewhere. But the three of us had a lot in common. We rode bikes, fixed bikes together, built model cars and airplanes and spaceships, talked about girls, went to youth group, you know, stuff like that. Now, it's, it's freshman year, which if it's, this has been a while for you, you may have, have forgotten, especially if you're in a school district where you move around from building to building at different, uh, different schools. Uh, freshman year, it's like everything starts over again, right? You feel like you're pretty well set in middle school with friends and groups of friends, and then suddenly freshman year, like, oh no, everything's different. And I thought I had it set, and I didn't. So finding these guys was, it was important to me. Uh, th this was my tribe. We, we had made a pact together, the three of us that we were going to ride our bikes to school every single day of high school because we were freshmen and for some reason that sounded like a good idea. Uh, we're like, it doesn't matter if you get a driver's license in a car, you're riding your bike to school every day. It doesn't matter if it snows a foot, we're riding our bikes, right? I was really into this. Well, it was one morning. Uh, Chris and I both lived about a block from each other, both a block north of Vince. We had to ride by his house on the way to school, so we normally just rendezvoused there. So I'm 
heading into school, riding past uh, or towards Vince's house. It's like a mile total to school, so it's not that long of a ride. But as I'm pulling up towards uh, Vince's house, he and Chris are already out in the driveway. Vince is uh, standing, straddling his bike, facing down the driveway towards the street. Chris is facing the other way, and he's, he's talking about something that's really moving him because he's leaning in. You can kind of tell by his body language. And as Vince sees me coming, you know, and then Chris has got his back to me, I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm going to surprise him, knock him over or something like that. It's the way we both showed love and let him know that he's on the outside still because he only just moved to Monroe, you know, three years earlier. So I'm pulling up and, and I see Vince is starting to, to look at me and, and look at Chris and then look back at me and then look at Chris again and his eyes are doing that whole like trying to communicate thing that I've never quite gotten. But uh, um, Vince is obviously trying to tell Chris something with his eyes and as I pull up behind him, just about to run into him sideways and knock him over, I can hear what he's saying, which I can't remember. I just remember it was about me and it was bad enough that I just turned around and took off for school. And that was the moment when I found out I wasn't really in, like I thought I had been. I was out. In an essay uh, called The Inner Ring, C.S. Lewis argues that the desire to be in, to be included, to be on the inside of some inner ring, some exclusive club, or at the very least, to be more in than others. That desire is one of the chief motives of our lives. And one of the main reasons that we look back on some of our behavior uh, with shame and regret. He says the desire to be in, to be part of some exclusive club, some group, is a terrible, terrible burden because the benefits of being in are so short-lived. Right? You finally gain acceptance into that group that you wanted to be part of, and after about a week, well, that's normal life. Now we've got to go find another, even more exclusive circle to be part of, to start our own or get ourselves into this other group uh, that's even smaller. Lewis likens it to peeling an onion. He says, uh, if you succeed, there will be nothing left. Now, he doesn't go so far as to call this motivation or this impulse evil because he sees in it a reflection of our real situation. Uh, he says, deep down, we all know we really are on the outside. None of us are in the way we want to be. Because, he says, being in, the desire to be in, to be part of something is a God-directed desire unless we substitute something else for it. We want to be in because in means intimacy. It means being appraised, approved of, evaluated, and then welcomed, known, and accepted. And so we, we go after it in every different place we can find it if we don't think we're getting it from God. See, we, we have to know, uh, in a deep way that touches the core of who we are, we, we have to know that we are in with God, or we're going to spend the entirety of our lives jockeying for position in all sorts of other groups or clubs or circles to make ourselves feel better the more included we are, or at the very least to make others feel worse for not being included. 
And it's that drive to be in that leads us to Hebrews 9, verses 23 through 28. We're looking at this passage not just because it's next in our study through Hebrews or because we covered the uh, passage before um, last week, but because in this passage, the author of Hebrews is working to convince his readers, people who grew up under a Jewish understanding of what it, what it means to be in with God, how to come into the presence of God, that there is a better way. There's a better way in. He's been arguing, unlike every high priest that has come before, Jesus, our great high priest, actually goes into the presence of God once for all and will reappear to bring us into God's presence with him. And until we are brought face-to-face with God, until uh, the one who brings us in takes us into God's presence, we're always going to be trying to substitute something else to fill that void. So, if you haven't turned there already, turn to Hebrews 9. 23 through 28, we're going to follow along as Jesus, our great high priest, as we read of him entering into the presence of God once for all, before reappearing, brings salvation to those who are waiting. Let's jump in. Hebrews 9, beginning in verse 23. He begins the argument saying, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. And he's referring back to verse 22. He closed the last uh, paragraph, his argument of the last paragraph, uh, by reminding everyone, you know, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Those are the rites that he's referring to in verse 23 when he says that all the copies of the heavenly things have to be purified with these rites. Uh, and so when we read 23 and following, we're, we're supposed to have in our, in our minds this, uh, this fact, this background that the old covenant law system, the, the old Jewish law system, uh, had provision under all the rituals, all the rites, all of it, had provision for everything to be purified before it could be used in worship. The place of worship had to be purified. The instruments of worship, the clothing that the priests wear, the priests themselves all had to be purified to a certain extent before they could minister on behalf of the people in God's presence. It all had to be purified because nothing unclean, nothing sinful, nothing defiled, could enter into the presence of God, into the presence of the unstained, unblemished, the Holy One. Not because he doesn't like it, or it somehow makes him go, ew, like pepperoni on a pizza or something like that, but because sin, and such a thing as sin, simply cannot exist in his presence. Uh, you could think of it like the, the, the old phrase, um, nature abhors a vacuum. Right? Nature abhors a vacuum, cannot tolerate a vacuum because it can't tolerate a hole in space. And scientists have tried to create true vacuums, and every time they do, they immediately collapse back in on themselves. Space will always be filled by what's around it. And I think in, in some sense, sin is similar in God's presence. It just collapses in on itself. It needs to be purified, to be, to be made not sin before the one who bears it can stand in God's presence. It has to be purified. And under the old covenant law system, there were all sorts of different ways for this purification to happen before the high priest could enter into the holy of holies. Now, in the background of this passage, even more in chapter 9 and 10 as we've looked into it, in the background of this passage is an understanding of 
the whole Day of Atonement rituals. And I don't think we've taken a few moments just to kind of lay out on the table again what those rituals are to make sure that we're all kind of on the same page. Uh, if, if you're like me trying to read through the Old Testament, um, you get to Leviticus and it gets a little repetitive and difficult and maybe you skip over it to go to the books with the good stories about kings and battles and armies and stuff like that. But um, anyway, the Day of Atonement rituals, it's, it's kind of complex. There's a lot to it. Every time I try to read it, it it's, it's hard to keep it all in my mind. But I'll try to give you the Sparks Notes version. It happens once a year. Okay, once a year, the Day of Atonement comes around. It's always the same day, the 10th day of the seventh month of the year. And in this ritual, the high priest of the year purifies the temple, the grounds, all of that, and then goes into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, to seek reconciliation with God and make atonement for the sins of the people. The temple itself is set up basically with two main rooms. One is holy and the other is the holy of holies, the most holy place, the sanctum sanctorum, the, uh, the place where God's presence resides. And the high priest is only allowed in once a year. And there's a lot that he has to do, and every ritual, uh, every part of the atonement ritual is highly symbolic. Uh, Hebrews 10 is going to go on to argue that uh, even part of it is to serve as a reminder over and over to the people that, that we have sin, that it means something, that it has to be dealt with. But there's different supplies that are needed. A bowl, two goats, fire for a burnt offering, fire for burning incense inside the temple, the holy linen coat, the holy linen undergarments, the sash, the turban, uh, places for ceremonial washing, all sorts of things go into it. But basically, the high priest takes a bowl, uh, sacrifices the bowl, uses some of the blood, takes it into the Holy of Holies, and with the incense burning, forming a cloud in front of him to, to hide the presence of God, he takes the blood of the bowl and he sprinkles it on the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat, the, these main holy kind of relics of the Jewish religion uh, that God himself gave. And, and he sprinkles the blood on all of this in order to purify the place. And then he goes back out and there's two goats and one of the goats becomes a scapegoat and it takes the sins of the people off into the wilderness, but the other one is uh, sacrificed and he takes the blood and he goes back into the Holy of Holies and he sprinkles the blood. And in this case, he's making atonement for the people with the blood of the goat. So the ritual is both the purification of the place and the priest and the people and all of that all at once. And, and it's one thing for us to, to kind of go over it um, somewhat clinically, like, and this happened, and then this happened, and then that happened. But you've got to understand for the people reading this letter or hearing this sermon for the first time, like, this is their lived experience. This is the most important day of the Jewish calendar. This is the one everybody looks forward to, that you talk about, that you make sure your kids understand. Like they've got the, the deeply situated memories uh, like we do when it comes to Christmas or the 4th of July or these other very significant holidays that we have traditions around. So for them, they're reading this and, and he's reinterpreting the core sense of what it means for them to be Jewish as he's making this argument. So with all of that in the background, we get to verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with all of these rites that you've been watching your entire life. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. 
Now, we've talked a little bit, because the author of Hebrews has brought it up a couple of times, that there is a true reality in heaven and sort of a copy, what he calls in other places, a sketch and a shadow of that reality on earth. And he's saying here, like, okay, if the things on earth need to be purified through these kind of rituals, then the things in heaven need to be purified through an even greater ritual, a greater sacrifice. And every commentary I read looks at it and goes, now, what does that mean? And honestly, we really don't know. Um, com- authors were either saying, like, well, duh, it's obvious. There's really only one answer. Or they were laying out a whole range of things and saying, we, every one of them has problems. We don't know what it means that the articles of worship in heaven have to be purified, but they're already in the presence of God, and how does that work? And should we maybe even not be thinking about this spatially, but temporally, and whatever. I get my eyes glazed over. I had a hard time with it. But our best guess, our best guess of what it means is that the, the old covenant rituals were in place to purify where God's presence dwelt. And in the new covenant... God has promised that he will dwell with his people in the church. So in some sense, what Jesus did on the cross, and then in the analogy of the high priest going into the Holy of Holies, what Jesus did purifies the church so that God's presence can dwell among us. But like I said, that's best guess. Most, we really don't know what it means that the heavenly things themselves have to be purified. What we do know, the main point, comes in verse 24. The heavenly things had to be purified, and Christ has entered. He says, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are the copies of the true things, like we talked about, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And this is the crux of the argument. You know, you could say about any high priest any given year, you could easily say that the high priest has entered into the holy of holies to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. But you couldn't say that the high priest has entered into heaven itself, into the very presence of God, in order to represent us, be in God's presence on our behalf. See, the author of Hebrews knows that Jesus didn't go into the physical, material, holy of holies in the temple in Jerusalem. He never went through that curtain, through that veil, into that most holy place. That's exactly the point. What he's saying is when Jesus was on the cross, when he offered himself as a sacrifice on our behalf, he was functioning as a high priest, as the great high priest, the greatest of all high priests. He was functioning as a high priest on the Day of Atonement. He was going into the presence of God but not a materially located presence of God, but into heaven itself. Not the copy, but the reality. And he's in God's presence to represent us. See, no other priest has that kind of access to God. Every other priest in the Old Covenant system was representing us in the shadows. And Jesus was representing us in the light, God's presence. Face-to-face with God, Jesus is making reconciliation for us, seeking atonement and forgiveness for us. This high priest, Jesus, is so much greater than every priest that has come before because he has gone into 
Not the holy of holies, but heaven itself. Not into the copy, but into the reality. And he went in only once. Only once. That's significant. Take a look at verse 25. Uh, the author, so far, he's been, he's been laying out these, these contrasts, right? High priest would go into the earthly holy of holies. Jesus went into the heavenly holy place, the most holy place. And then verse 25, nor was it, that is going into heaven, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, because the high priest under the old system enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. Because, look, if Jesus had to do that repeatedly, then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. That doesn't make sense. He's saying Jesus went in once. The old high priest under the old system had to go in every single year. They had to. It was never finished. There was always more sin that had to be covered. But Jesus offered himself once. Once for all. Look, he didn't have to present himself over and over. Nor did he go in with the borrowed life, the borrowed blood of another, of an animal. He went in with his own blood, his own life, and sacrificed himself once. Once for all time. The second half of verse 26 says, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Once for all at the end of the ages, some other translations say at the consummation of the age or at the end of the world. Not because the earth stopped spinning at this moment and nothing else happened, but because everything else that happens happens in light of this one moment. Everything that came before the sacrifice of Christ on the cross now has to be reread and reinterpreted in light of leading up to that moment. And everything after that moment is now just the working out of Christ's self-sacrifice into history, into the world. But in the eyes of the author of Hebrews, history has stopped. Our great high priest, Jesus, is still in the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. We are waiting for him to come back out, to reappear. He showed up and sacrificed himself once, the author tells us. And when he reappears, when he comes back out, it won't be because there's more sin to deal with. Look at verse 27. Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment... In other words, as certain as that old maxim that we all know is, right? You die, you face judgment. As certain as that is, so Christ, having been offered once, having died, to bear the sins of many, he will appear a second time. And you would think for judgment, but he says, no, not to deal with sin, not to bring judgment for the sin that he's already taken care of, but to save those, to bring salvation for those who are eagerly waiting for him. See, he's making this point that just as the, the earthly high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies and then come back out and bring with him the assurance uh, that the offering had been accepted and that there was at least temporary atonement for sin, so Jesus, our greatest high priest, has entered into the most holy place of heaven 
And now we are simply waiting for him to reappear, to make final our salvation. See, when Jesus reappears, it won't be to deal with sin again, like the other priests did. They could come out, take a breath, and then get back to work. Jesus' sacrifice is once for all, once for all time. He, he doesn't have to come back out of the Holy of Holies and deal with sin a second and a third and a fourth and a fifth time year over year. His one sacrifice, his one offering was enough. And when he comes back out, it'll be to bring salvation to those who are waiting. Now, let's imagine the scene. None of us grew up under this system, so let's, let's imagine ourselves back in uh, this old covenant system. It's the 10th month, 10th day of the 7th month. It's the Day of Atonement. We've all been looking forward to it. It's the biggest holiday, the biggest holy day that the nation of Israel has, and anyone who can make it to Jerusalem goes. You want to be there for this. And anybody in Jerusalem who needs to be known, like they're, they're up front. They, they got there early. They've got their spots in the temple courtyard where they're right up front where everybody can see them. And we've just managed to sort of squeeze in a little bit so that we can see from a distance, but we can see what's going on up there. And, and, and as we're standing in this courtyard and the crowd of people just massed together, uh, people start to move and make way as, as a bowl and a couple of goats are led along by us. They come by close enough that you can smell them. They're perfect specimens. I mean, they are... Uh, amazing. You wish you could raise them like that. But we can't. They make their way up the steps up to where the altar is, and we see the bull, and we see the two goats, and we see the high priest come out, and he's wearing uh, the clothes that he only puts on this one time of the year for this ritual. He comes out with a knife. A couple other priests are holding the bowl in place. That's not an easy job. Uh, as the priest comes closer with the knife, and, and almost before you know it's over, uh, the bull has been uh, killed and the blood is coming out, and the, uh, the priest is performing the correct parts of this ritual to, to burn the bull in a sin offering. And he takes some of the blood, he takes a torch from out of the fire, and he turns around and he walks into the temple. Now, we can't see what he's doing, but we know. We read about it in Leviticus. We talk about it every year. Our parents make sure we understand what's happening inside of there. He's gone in with the incense and the fire, and he's, he's burning this incense before God over the mercy seat and over the Ark of the Covenant. You can start to see the, the smoke kind of seeping out between the cracks and the rocks. And you know he's taking the blood of this bowl and he's sprinkling it. A little bit on the right side, a little bit on the left side, a little bit on the top. Seven times, a very specific way. And then he comes back out. The place is now holy. God can now appear. And he takes the two goats and he casts lots. Uh, one of them not so lucky as the other. One of the goats is chosen to be a scapegoat, and the handler brings the goat up to the priest, and he puts his hand on the forehead of the goat, and he prays, and all of the sins of the people of Israel are ceremonially transferred to that goat. And the handler takes the goat, and he turns, and he comes down the steps and back out through the courtyard, and, and you watch him go as he goes out into the street, and you know he's headed out, for, uh, out beyond the, the city walls because the sin of the people needs to be separated from the people. 
And this handler, I mean, he's got, he's got the job. He's going to be unclean for the next week and won't be able to be around anyone. But uh, it's the highlight of his life to be the one who leads the sins of the people out into the wilderness and lets it go. The other goat is sacrificed same way that the bull was, burned on the altar. But some of its blood is taken into, uh, into a bowl, into some sort of utensil, and, and the priest has this in his hands, and, and he turns and faces the temple. And this is the greatest moment of his career. It's what he's hoped for since he entered the priesthood. It's what he's trained for for a year since he was chosen as high priest of that year. Uh, he's about to enter into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God himself. And the only thing between him and God is the blood of a sacrifice. And he's trembling a little bit because he's going back through in his head, like, did I do every step correctly? I did it do it right. Okay, I trained for this. I think we did it right. I, there's nothing left for it now but to go in. And he goes in to the holy place and then through the veil into the holy of holies. And we can't see in. Again, we, we can't see what he's doing, but we know he's taking the blood of the goat and he's sprinkling a little bit on the right and a little bit on the left and a little bit on the top, seven times the same way that he did with the blood of the bull. And as he's in the holy of holies making atonement before God, we going to realize we're holding our breath. Because the question's there every year, will it be good enough? Did we do it right? Will, will, it, will it take? Will it hold for this year? Can he stand in the presence of God and live? All of this is tumbling through our minds in that, that moment between when he goes in and when he comes back out. And we're just waiting for the high priest to reappear. Because when he parts the curtain and comes back out and stands in front of the people, we know we can breathe for a moment. Sin has been taken care of. It has been done away with. We are clean. We can be in the presence of God. We can find forgiveness, at least for a moment until we start thinking ahead to next year. But we know for that moment that we're in. You know, I heard one best friend telling another best friend uh, the reasons why I shouldn't be in the circle, why it should be a circle of two instead of the three of us. I went ahead and responded the way any scorned, uh, desperate for love and acceptance and attention person responds, which is to say, smear campaign. Luckily, we weren't online at this point, so it all had to be uh, in-house and in-person. Uh, but I started where, of course, you would start. I started by trying to get Vince to believe that actually Chris is the one on the outside of the circle, and he and I are the circle of two. And uh, unfortunately, I was um, pretty good at it and quite successful, which I'm looking back on ashamed of. Because the, for the rest of high school, three more years of this, uh, Vince and I and everyone else in our youth group circle and our marching band circle and the school circle, which 
it was a class of 100, so there's only about 400 of, of us in the school, but each of us, we made sure Chris knew that he was on the outside. Now, we never came right out and told him, uh, but every time there was a chance, we let him know. We, he was the target, the one who didn't belong. The only way that I knew to feel in was to make sure someone else felt out. What about you? In a different essay on the same topic, uh, Lewis writes, apparently then our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always only seen from the outside. It's no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. He says to be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond all our merits, and also the healing of that old ache. See, the author of Hebrews is telling us we are standing just outside the door of the temple as our high priest has gone into the Holy of Holies, the holiest place himself, and we are waiting for him to come back out and do what no high priest has ever been able to do before, to come back out extend a hand to us and bring us back in. To bring us back in with him into the presence of God himself. It's unbelievable. But do we live like that? I got a jump start on my sermon this week, uh, which I normally don't, wrote almost half of it on Monday, which turned out to be great because with three days of no school, um, I didn't have as much time later in the week. But it was also not great because I knew what I wanted to talk about. I knew what God was saying to me through this passage, and I got an entire week uh, to see just how sinful I am in this area, to highlight all of the little tricks and tactics that I employ to make sure that people know that I'm in a, a deeper circle, a better circle, a more exclusive club than they are. It was a real uh, uplifting week. As I, I, I find myself, uh, and I, of course, all of these things, I, I realize them after the fact. I'm verbally belittling a group of people for an, engaging in some group behavior that's not the way we do it where I'm from. I've repeatedly used humor to sort of differentiate between those who are in and get the joke and those who are out and who don't get the joke. I've critiqued the behavior of friends and then turned around and done the same thing myself, which is fine if I'm the one doing it. I've used auspiciously erudite vocabulary to subtly indicate that I'm of a, of a more excellent educational background than others, even when there are perfectly serviceable words I could use and actually be understood. I realized pretty much every time I open my mouth to talk, I'm either angling to get into a more exclusive circle, letting others know that I'm in a circle that they're not, or pushing someone out of a circle that we're in together. 
And if none of those things work, and I can't get into the circle I want to be in, well, that's fine. I'll just redefine it. I'm a circle of one, baby. Exclusivity at its best. Just me. I'm a rock. I'm an island all about myself. What about you? See, until we know on a, on a gut level, until we know that we are in with God, that we have been accepted by God because of the sacrifice of our great high priest, until we know that we will be invited into his presence fully in the future and to the extent that we can experience it now, until we know that, we are going to substitute that desire for something, with something. We're going to continually try to push ourselves into more and more exclusive rings and groups and clubs and circles, feeding our need for intimacy with these substitute gods that can never fully satisfy. See, every week in our worship services, at some point we share the gospel from Scripture we announce the good news of the gospel and we follow it with these words of assurance and pardon saying something like, know that because of your faith in Christ, you are forgiven and be at peace. Now, I know that. I even believe that. But I'm not sure I've really wrapped my heart around it. Because my default mechanism is to claw my way up and push others down. And I'm hoping, and it's more than a hope because it's, it's a promise from God, but I'm hoping that as we get together every week and we remind ourselves of who our great high priest is and what he has done for us, that slowly, slowly, slowly the core of who I am would actually learn to rest in the knowledge, in the belief, in the fact that we are accepted by God through faith in Christ, we can rest and be at peace. So, question. Are you in? Are you in? Are you in up here but not down here? Are you in? And you can say, yes, of course, I know I'm in. I've, I've prayed this prayer. I, of course I know I am, and yet... Uh, your gut orientation towards the world is clawing your way into deeper and deeper circles of intimacy so that you can feel that, that special secret thrill of being in the know. <laughs> until, until we come face-to-face at a heart level with, with the one who has left heaven to come get us, and bring us in, until that has sunk into the core of who we are, we will not be able to rest. We're just going to keep going to find it somewhere else. So our prayer, my prayer this week, is that we would learn to rest in the knowledge that God has brought us in through Jesus. Pray with me. Father, You've given us a gift in Jesus, our great high priest, our sacrifice on our behalf. You've given us a gift that is beyond all of our merits, beyond all of our deserving, beyond all of our, any glory and honor that we deserve. But it touches to the core of who we are and heals that ache in us to be known. Help us today, this week, this 
year, this decade to rest and be at peace, knowing who we are. That we are the children of God who Jesus has come and gathered and is bringing into your presence. We thank you. In the name of our Savior, our priest, amen.